All right, we're calling the sermon tonight Avoiding Sexual Morality Part 1 because we're only going to get to the first part. Now, perhaps one of the hardest parts in counseling is when we need to stop dealing with just what's happened to you or to me and get to here's what you should do, right? And I've done a lot of counseling and I'm thankful for the opportunity to talk to people about the difficulties in their lives. And sometimes that's even just something that happens as friends, right? And one of the things we have to do often in talking with our friends or in formal counseling is to hear about the bad things that have happened in life. Because yes, we are sinners, but we're also sufferers and bad things happen. We suffer. People have sinned against us. This world is broken because of sin. And all this bad stuff happens. And so we spend a lot of time and we pray and we comfort, but then often we get to this point where we're saying, but how are you responding to this bad situation in your life? What are you doing to make it worse? We, we can probably all think of examples of people you've talked to. Who you're like, yeah, you've had some bad things happen in your life, but you're making it worse by your choices, right? And one of the most important things we need to do in those moments is say, not just you need to do, but you need to see what God has done and how that should lead you to do what you should do. How we talk about, we'll get there a second, God's actions drive us to action. But this is hard. It's really hard because suddenly I have to do something about it. And I have to change my thinking and my actions. And this is where Paul is at in the book of 1 Thessalonians, is he is addressing them and saying, all right, guys, I have expressed all these things. Now let me talk about your life and what you're doing. If you're following along, you can see. We've had this outline before where we're entering a new part of the book. Chapter 1 was Paul's thanksgiving to the Thessalonians. He just praised God for what was going on in their lives. And he's like, I'm so thankful for you. You bring me much joy. Things are great. Chapters 2 and 3 were the reminders of his ministry to them and how just how much he loved them. Then chapters 4 and 5, he brings out the guns and he starts to tell them, okay, guys, now here's what you need to think different about and here's what you need to do differently. And because of that, there's a shift that takes place. But Paul does this consistently where so often in his books, the indicatives come before the imperatives. The what God has done comes before what we are supposed to do. Now, as Christians, he uses the word here, walk. How you ought to walk. And it's a common phrase. It's talked about the foundation of our lives. We have a walk in what we do. But he spent the past two chapters for a reason saying Here's what God has done in your life already. And we see this throughout the Bible, right? Where we have this process, and we'll come back to this little chart here, of the gospel observations or indicatives lead us to faith in Jesus, and out of that grows the obligations or imperatives of what we're supposed to do. The Bible has this all over. In the Ten Commandments, remember? And you can go back, and I preached through the whole Ten Commandments, and I talked about it at the beginning, it says in Exodus 2, verse 2, Exodus 20, verse 2, I am the Lord your God 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God rescued Israel. Therefore, they have to be something and do something. You know, he said, because I've rescued you, you shall have no other gods before me. And in the Bible here, he's saying, have a sexually pure life. But before that, here's all the ways God has loved you and cared for you. Now, we, we mess this up often, I'd argue, when we forget that, that indicative, what God has done for us. And we're going to focus on that a little bit because we start to see God's commands as a burden, not a blessing. I've been reading the biography. It's an interesting biography uh, about the last king of America called George the, George the Third, the last king of America. Fascinating book. In there, he talks about King George III, who was king when the Revolutionary War happened. And actually, this man was one of the most Christian kings of England that, we've ever, that ever was there. He was actually faithful to his wife. And you know what? He actually cared about his subjects. And a lot of the things he wrote in his early years were very much in line with the revolution. Now, he has been bashed in a lot of ways, but you know, perhaps... Maybe one of the most ways he is remembered now comes from the musical Hamilton, where the line goes, you'll remember that I served you well. Oceans rise, empires fall. We have seen each other through it all. And when push comes to shove, I will send a fully armed battalion to remind you of my love. And I, and I think we often think of God this way. God has given me something to do. And if I don't listen to him, he is going to send the armies of heaven to destroy me because he wants to show me his love. Versus saying, this God has done so much for us in Christ. And Paul has shown from his personal experience with them and his love for them, how much God has done for them. And so when he calls them to live a certain way, he's not saying do this or else. He's saying, as we'll see, do this for your own good. If you're following along, we're going to try and address in verses 1 through eh, 2, maybe we'll get through 3, how the church reminds Christians about real purity, how the church is supposed to remind Christians about what it means to be pure. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers... We ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instruction we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. We told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. So we're going to see this care expressed, how the church reminds people about purity, real purity. And in verse one, 
he lays out that the church asks Christians to live holy. A very important word. We ask and we urge you. We ask and we urge. The word begins in chapter 4, verse 1, with finally, which many commentators have said is possibly the worst translated word in the English Bible because he says finally and then goes on for two more chapters. And this happens throughout Paul's letters because it doesn't actually mean, well, let me say my last thing. And so when we hear finally, we think, oh, okay, he's wrapping it up. That, that's not what Paul means. That's not what the word means. It, it really means lacking. And it's kind of like saying, and another thing I haven't mentioned yet, in, or, or I, I've laid aside, here's the foundation. Now let me get to other things. We've had our appetizers. Let me get to the main course. Like that's the idea of the word rather than let me get to my final statements. Um, often Paul uses it when he gets to the practical parts. It's like, I've said what God has done and there's still something you're lacking. For example, in Philippians chapter three, verse one, he says, finally, my brothers rejoice in the Lord. After two chapters of saying what God has done, chapters three and four is all about what they're supposed to do. And so he says, finally, or let me get to the main part. Brothers, brothers. It's a statement about the relationship. We've said this is one of the most affectionate books in the New Testament. Paul has said he treats them like a father and a mother. So he calls them brothers here, both that their family, their spiritual family, but also because he's like, you believe this stuff. You're a Christian. So come, hear the truth. I know you're going to believe it. So brothers, we ask and urge you. Listen to us. The word ask means to inquire. Say, please. And I think this is important to remember that Paul has no authority or ability. I'm not authority is the wrong word. Ability. He has no ability to enforce any kind of regulations from afar. He is stuck away. He, he can't really do anything from a long distance to force them to act a certain way. And so he's asking them, listen to me, please. The word urge is, it is the one that's used to encourage. It's to come alongside, parakaleo in Greek. It means to put your arm around them. And so it's like he has this idea of from far away, I want to write to you to try and ask you to consider the truth that you know. I want to put my arm around you from afar and help you because I can't make you do anything. But the source of it isn't just Paul. As I ask and I urge you in the Lord Jesus. Paul does this really often, as Christians should do, that what we're saying is not just our opinion. This is not a TED talk from Pastor Chris, where I'm going to tell you my clever little idea, and you can try and put it in your life, and you can take it or leave it, and maybe listen to the next TED talk, and they'll say something completely different. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and there be no division among you because of Jesus. Or in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, 
we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So these words take on a weight. Yes, he's asking. Yes, he's urging. He has no ability to enforce it. But he's saying these words on behalf of the king of the universe. So this this is not even the call of a pastor. As close as a pastor like myself gets to the actual words of the Bible, as we explain the words of the Bible, we are saying, this is what the God who has created you wants from you. Please listen to him. The church asks Christians to live holy. Christianity has always been a force for good, morally as well. And Christianity has always done that well by the force of persuasion, not the force of the sword. The sword created hypocrites throughout Europe where many people would put on a happy face of, oh, I have, to do what, I have to do what the church says, and then they would just hide it behind them. But that's not the way it was in the early church. Do you know that Christianity and the Christian ethic has never been one of traditionalism? I, I know sometimes that gets thrown out at us these days. That, oh, you're just traditional, and the sexual ethic is new. You're old fogies. You don't understand what the young and new people are doing with their sexuality. But in fact, Christianity has always been counterculture. You go back to the early days of the Roman era when Christianity was slowly beginning. And I was reading how people in the Roman world thought it was ridiculous that a man would be faithful to his wife. One piece of literature said that when you travel to the afterlife where the Isle of the Blessed is, it was described as this. All the wives are shared in common without jealousy and all the boys submit to their pursuers without resistance. That was the Roman world that the church was growing up in. That was heaven in their minds. And the church came and said, no, the God of the universe wants you when you are married to be faithful to your wife alone, to commit to one woman for life. And through persuasion, through this calling, the Roman world was changed. Still today, through persuasion and the power of our words and our example, we say, this way is better. Let us protect women in this world rather than abuse them, as even the ancient world did. Christians ask people to live holy lives. And I, this is important, and it has been an important reminder for Christians for centuries, that the church doesn't actually have any authority for anything except disfellowship. The church should have no armies, no police, no enforcement. We ask people to do what God says. We don't force them to because it has to be a choice from the heart. And if a professing Christian refuses to do what God's word says, we only have one power. That is the power to remove the blessings of Christian fellowship. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9 through 13, I, I, I talked about um, part of it this morning. Paul says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, the people he's warning about here. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of the world or the greedy or the swindlers or the idolaters, 
since then, you would need to go out of the world. Paul's saying it, it, this is not about what unbelievers do. He says, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual morality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Paul wonderfully says that this purging is not an act of spite, but he says that, um, verse 5 of 1 Corinthians 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The only power Christians have is to, is to try and convince and then remove the blessing of our fellowship if someone refuses to obey God. And we see how the church asks people to follow. But the church doesn't just ask people to follow these commands. Secondly, we also instruct Christians to please God. He says, second part of verse one, that just as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. They had received instruction about God from Paul when he had gone there as a missionary and spent time with them before he had to flee because different people were persecuting him and trying to attack him. And they, and they knew this truth, he's saying. And they are to do this more. We have to remember, so much of Christian instruction is not necessarily telling you something new. I know often when you're in church for a long time, you're like, I don't know, am I learning anything new? And that's good. It's good to learn new things. But often it's just reminding you of things you already know, <laughs> reminding you of the truth that you sometimes forget. In 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter says, 2 Peter 1, 12, I intended always to remind you of these qualities, though I know you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it is right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder. You want to be encouraged and say, well, how can I live the way God has called me to live? Be reminded of the truth. They are to walk. They are to please God. They are to live in a way that is pleasing to their king. The word walk is a perfect metaphor because it's every day. You know, you might not run every day, you might not ride or drive every day, but Lord willing, if you're healthy, you know what you do every day? Walk. And there is nothing more discouraging than when you cannot walk, right? When you're injured or hurt. And so walking is just normal life. It's supposed to be. And the Christian's whole life is supposed to be about pleasing God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9 says, or whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Everybody lives to please somebody. People live to please themselves, and yet we often feel discouraged. We have no sensitivity to the needs of others. Sometimes we, we, we are enslaved to the trying pleasing other people and make them happy for us. But God calls us to please him, the one who actually has given his son for us. 
we get the privilege of serving him now that he's freed us from the burdens of other people. And so I want to take a minute. Sunday night sometimes is a little more instructional than our Sunday morning sermons. And so that's part of the reason why I want to have some slides. And so if you do want to pull out this sheet, I, I want to go over a diagram that's used by biblical counselors truth to remind us how we can be pleasing to God in every day. So we're going to look at a bunch of passages to understand what we call the why decision diagram. Who will you worship? If you want to flip in your Bible, you can along with me or just listen. We're going to walk through these different passages and explain this and you can fill it out. In the center there, little dot, we have our decisions or choices. We make decisions every day. We have to make them and what comes up. And according to Luke 9, verse 23, in Luke 9, verse 23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You get that? So, it's a choice. Do I please God? Or do I please myself and my selfish desires? I can choose please God or please myself. As a limerick once said, only two options on the shelf, pleasing God or pleasing self. And this is the tricky thing about it. This is the truth the Bible teaches us, is that when we make this choice to please ourself, it always seems to start off really easy. It always seems to start off really easy. Because what could be more natural than doing what I want to do? That, that is my choice. I, I want what I want. But it ends hard because it goes against the Creator's ways. For example, you see a couple passages there, but Proverbs 13, 15 says, Good sense wins favor, but the way of the treacherous is the ruin. Someone who chooses, like I said, I, I want to do what I want, regardless of anyone else, it ends in ruin. Now, pleasing God, on the other hand, starts off kind of hard. Because denying yourself Picking up a cross hurts, doesn't it? Uh, it? It hurts to say, I am willing to die to my desires. Paul says in Romans 8 that we were supposed to put to death the flesh. It feels like a death to say no to certain things, doesn't it? But here is the promise. It ends easier. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke, 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus offers rest. Now, you might say, well, okay, but like, I know what's good for me, right? I, I can choose that. Or maybe you're like, but I'm not really choosing what I think is good. I have, you know, for example, these great many teachers. There's all these world religions, and they have different teachers and different ideas. Why can I not just listen to some of them? You know, that's what Israel faced millennia ago. If you would, and want to hold your hand here in Thessalonians and turn back to Jeremiah chapter 44 with me. You'll see, when we are following ourselves, Jeremiah 44, verse 16 and 18. This is one of the Old Testament passages. It's in the major prophets. So if you get to Isaiah, it's right after Isaiah, Jeremiah. Jeremiah existed in a pluralistic age where there were many different philosophies and gods out there, and they were competing with one another. And though he told Israel to honor Yahweh alone, they didn't do a very good job, did they? Jeremiah chapter 44, verse 16 and 18. I'll back up. I'll read verse 15. Jeremiah comes and says, you need to worship God alone. He is going to bless you and honor you if you do. Jeremiah 44, verse 15. Then all the men who knew that their wives had made offerings to other gods, and all the women who stood by, a great assembly, and all the people who lived in Pathros in the land of Egypt answered Jeremiah, As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will do everything that we have vowed, making offerings to the queen of heaven, and we pour out our drink offerings to her, as we did, both we and our fathers, our kings and our officials in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food and prospered and saw no disaster. But since we left off making offerings to the queen of heaven and pouring our drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. And the women said, when we made offerings to the queen of heaven and poured out drink offerings to her, was it without our husband's approval that we made cakes for her, bearing her image, and poured out drink offerings to her? What's so interesting about their response is they're not trying to say, well, which God is better? Which God is more powerful? Their question is, which God gives us what we want? Quickly, too. And so the response is, well, we could serve Yahweh, but when we serve the queen of heaven, we got what we want. So why would we serve you? Another passage, talking about the same time, is Hosea chapter 2, verse 5. He said, their mother played the harlot. She went to other gods. She who conceived them acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lover's. Who give me my bread and my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink. Same thing. She's like, I'm going to go to these other gods, these other nations. They're going to give me what I want. But Isaiah 2.8 says, She does not know that it is I who give her grain, the new wine, the oil. 
I lavished her silver and gold when they used it for Baal. See, Israel thought that they received those great gifts from foreign gods, but it was Yahweh the whole time who was taking care of them. They were sure of what they wanted, and they knew best what they needed to succeed. But they did not seek to learn about God, what their needs, and how he was going to provide for them. Instead, really, they began worshiping themselves. That, that's the issue. You might even think, I'm going after other gods, but I'm choosing. And therefore, I become God. I worship myself. I am controlled by my feelings and my desires, what I want. And that ruins us. Instead, we must have a firm principle in our minds. This is what Paul's talking about in 1 Thessalonians. What he says in 2 Corinthians 5, 9, whether at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. I love that thing, aim. It's our focus. We are going to say our goal is to please God. Now, What's confusing about all this, oh, that's blank. <gasps> no! All right, you're going to skip ahead a little bit. We've got some blank ones popped up. What's confusing about all this and makes it kind of hard is sometimes our actions, you see these, these habits that we have here, you know, these habits, these choices we make. You might be like me sometimes. You're like, I don't know why I'm making this choice. I want to please God, and yet I'm making the wrong choice repeatedly. Where is this coming from? Now, the Bible talks about how we have an outer self, which is our words, our actions, our deeds, but then there is something deep down, the inner self, our heart. Like weeds that sprout out of the ground. You're like, where are these weeds coming from? I pulled all the weeds out, and they're still there, but they have roots in the ground. And so our thinking, the way we direct our hearts and our minds, comes up one way or the other. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. And so it's what's in your heart. Not just emotions, we've talked about this, but it's all of what makes us up as people. Jesus said, Matthew 5, 15, 19, for out of the heart comes every evil thought, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, etc. Everything starts in the heart. And so, Galatians chapter 6, verse 8 says, For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Sow to the Spirit, reap from the Spirit. And, and so we have to remember, as your sheet says there, every temptation is an act of worship. Who will I worship? Myself and what makes sense to me? Or God who knows everything? Who's been everything? You know, it is possible to obey God and yet not please him. Right? It's possible to do the right thing without the right, right heart. Jonah, for example, is a great example of that. The prophet Jonah, who had the greatest revival in history, who convinced all the people of Nineveh to follow Yahweh. And yet, he went out, to the, out of the city and prayed for God to destroy them and complained to God about saving them. 
our obedience needs to be from the heart. Think of it like this way. You know, movies are fascinating things. Are they not? There's really two audiences with a movie. You have the people who make the movie and the people who pay to go to the movies. And I don't know about you, probably, maybe some of you remember when the Academy Awards were more movies that you all like to see, but a lot of people have commented in recent years, all the movies that win Academy Awards, no one cares about. Right? They're just like, I don't care about them. But it's made for people who make movies. And they're trying to impress themselves. And so they give awards to movies that impress themselves. And the audience is just like, uh, I don't care about that movie. I'd say, in the Christian life, Jesus is supposed to be both our director and our audience. He is the one who makes our life, who tells us what we should do, how we should do it. And he is the one we seek approval from, the applause. He is the one we seek, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you want to please Jesus? This question gets the very meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? So we better have an answer. Westminster Confession says it very well. The chief aim of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This means bringing him to light by being and doing what he desires. Obeying his word, depending upon his power, it's your heart and your behavior. And this is very practical for life. So say you're in a conflict with someone. You never get in conflicts. I, maybe it's just me who gets in fights at times. And the question in the midst of that conflict is, do I want to win or do I want to please God? Now, you can possibly win an argument while pleasing God, but, but those are different questions to ask. Those are different directions to have. And so... If your goal is to please Christ, then that will set your focus in terms of timing, energy, risk, etc. Like that's always like, man, is it really worth my risk to invest in this relationship? Jesus decides that. If you tend to be a person who acts rashly, who blows up angrily, then the commitment should be I need to please God and let him hold me back. On the flip side, if you're someone who tends to withdraw, to procrastinate, to avoid the conflict, then this commitment would be to push you forward because you're like, I can't just fake the peace here. I need to make it right with this person. Our goal is not to win or get what we want. Our goal is to be God's type of man or woman in the midst of the conflict, right? Or another great application of this truth is a job. How will you work? Pleasing God is our primary vocation, not vocation, vocation. It's our calling. Whether our job is to translate ancient languages like Aaron Valdezan, whether we're selling property, whether we're retired, or whether we're stay-at-home moms, our calling is to please God first and foremost. And so the first goal, and the question is not, how much money do I make on this job? But how do I bring glory to God by what I do? Not how impressive will my kids turn out, but how will I show my kids how I trust Jesus Christ? 
Make sense? It, it, it refocuses what our goals are. It sets them correctly. And so we do and put the effort in, not saying, well, will this get me what I want? But will this honor Christ? Now, got a little more time. So I'm going to get to verse two. I don't think I'm going to get to verse three. He has them to put Christ first, right? But then there is a third reality. Third, sorry about the slight editing problem here. Jesus commands people to be holy. Verse two. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Paul says in verse two, do more and more because you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. The mil- this term here, instructions, instructions don't get it. It's a military term, meaning commands. Here's what Jesus expects of you. It's the orders handed down from a superior officer, and we are soldiers in God's army. We must obey orders. As 2 Timothy 2, 4 says, no one serving as a soldier gets involved in civilian affairs. He wants to please his commanding officer, right? So these ethical instructions that he's about to get into, this call for sanctification and purity is not just a, well, here's what you got to do because it's a good idea. This is what Jesus, the God of the universe, calls them to do. And the Thessalonians understood that. In chapter 2, verse 13, if you flip back a page, he said, we thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Peter proclaimed the certainty of the scriptures, how it was the word of God. John recognized that his teaching was from God. To reject his teaching was to reject God, 1 John 4, 6. And it says, one commentator writes, for the word of God is welcomed with obedient faith. There, the power of God is at work. See, Jesus commands holiness. These commandments of God are good. But anything negative in our response comes from us. Not because God's commands are bad, but you know how we sometimes are told, don't do this? And you're like, but I want to do that, right? It's similar to this cool feature that if you take lime, not, not the fruit lime, the stone lime, and you throw some water on it, you know what happens? It starts bubbling and it causes what we call an exothermic reaction. You'll see smoke, you'll feel heat. Now, if you felt that water and you poured that water on your hand, would your hand start bubbling and burning? Absolutely not. If you drank it, you'd be like, it's cool and refreshing. But when it hits the lime, the lime starts to create this reaction. In the same way, the commands of God are good and refreshing. But when they hit our hearts, it is more possible for us to sin because we rebel against this. These moral instructions are from Jesus. They're not just advice. They are commands. 
and their commands from someone who has proven himself. We, we see this in Romans 8. You can flip there if you want to or just listen. In Romans 8, there's this great promise where he is telling them what to do and he's about to get into more things of what they should do. Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He talks about how nothing can separate us from the love of God. And this is the important feature to take into any command of God. Why is God telling me this? He is giving a command, but God has proven himself good because when he set his standard, he didn't just say far off and say, you figure it out on your own. Jesus entered this world. God made flesh and he did the things we were supposed to do. He lived up to every standard that God had set. And then at the end of his life, men put him on a cross to die. They convicted him of a crime he did not commit. And most importantly, the Bible says the wrath of God, the anger of God was put on him instead of us. And because of that, he died. Third day rose again, conquering death itself. And that God who gives to us Jesus' righteousness, all the good things Jesus did, the bad things we have done get given to him. He gives us the good things. And then he says, okay, now follow me. beautiful quote in this great book called The Gospel Primer. In The Gospel Primer, he brings out, and I'll, I'll, I'll read this and I want you guys to follow along. I don't want to read long things, but Milton Vincent says, every time I deliberately disobey a command of God, it is because in that moment, I am doubtful as to God's true intentions in giving me the command. Does he really have my best interests at heart? Is he withholding something from me that I would be better off having? Such questions, whether consciously asked or not, lie underneath every act of disobedience. It's like the serpent in the garden where serpent goes, but don't you want to be like God if you just take the one thing God tells you not to do? He goes on saying, however, the gospel changes my view of God's commandments and that it helps me to see the heart of the person from whom those commandments come. I realize that if God loved me enough to sacrifice his son's life for me, then he must be guided by that same love when he speaks his commandments to me. Viewing God's commands and prohibitions in this light, I can see them for what they really are, friendly signposts, a heavenly father who is seeking to love me through each directive so I might experience his very fullness forever. When I control my thoughts this way, the gospel cures me of my suspicions of God, thereby disposing me to walk more trustingly on the path of obedience. You get that? It is what God has done that makes us trust him. Well, we've seen today 
this kind of introduction to the moral commands. What God has done leads us to what we should do. We ask Christians to live holy. We instruct Christians to please God, and we give the commands that are from Jesus. Next time we'll get into those commands and what it means and why it is, but we stop and remember the gospel, first and foremost, tells us, here's why we should follow these. Because there are many times when we look at it and the voices around us, the culture around us says, this doesn't make sense. Why would you do this? Why would you restrict yourself in this way? And our answer must be, because God gave his son for us. How can we not trust him? Let me pray. Lord, may we trust you in what you say is morally right. May you provide the strength of God, the power of the Holy Spirit to follow them. It is overwhelming at times, Lord, to obey you. And so we pray you would make it happen. Use us as instruments of your mercy and grace to the glory of who you are, Jesus. Amen.